When I was five years old, my mother, in a great act of bravery, took me and my twin brother to the grocery store. And that day, as we were walking down the aisles of the store, I saw something that I did not know existed. There was this aisle that had candy, shelf upon shelf upon shelf of candy. There was a wall of candy. There was mounds of candy. It was the heaven of candy. Why had no one told me this existed? And so I got into my heart what I would do. And as my mom went into the next aisle and got distracted by my brother, I looked both ways and I took off running as fast as I could back to the candy aisle. And there I found exactly what I wanted, which was a box of good and plenty. And I grabbed it off the shelf, ripped it open, dumped it in my mouth like that until my cheeks were bulging with good and plenty, and I started to chew and it was so good. Then I realized that cheeks puffed out and a torn open box was a little conspicuous. So what I did was I got down on my haunches and I like kind of shuffled back until I was half under the bottom shelf of the candy aisle, figuring no one would see me here. I did. There was one flaw in my plan. It takes a long time to chew good and plenty. So before I had consumed the evidence, my mother came down the aisle. Now, at that moment, let's say it's you in the aisle of life, and you have just done a good and plenty, and you know it. What comes into your mind when you think about God in that moment? What is on his face toward you? What is he doing? What will he do? This matters so much. Because as A.W. Tozier once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And when I first read that sentence, I was like, really? It's more important than, than say, income or education or, or gender or, or race or... But what Tozier says is that there is a secret law of the soul by which we instinctively move toward our mental image of God and become more like that. And therefore, if I were able to extract from you your complete picture of God, I could with certainty predict your spiritual future. Whether you are going to become a person who is, say, more compassionate or more critical, more joyful or more judgmental. And you could do the same for me. And so what comes into our minds when we think about God determines our future. And so I ask you, what comes into your mind when you have messed up and not just like made a little mistake, but you have willfully, intentionally, knowing full well it was wrong, gone after something that displeased God? I talked with a woman not long ago who's a a beautiful Christian, very solid in her faith. But she told me, she said, you know, my background was a little rough, which was an understatement. And she said, and so after everything I've done, I sometimes fear I may not get into heaven. What's your picture of God? 
Or I, one night I was sitting at River City Roasters with a 20-something guy, and I said to him, can I just ask you, uh, well, where would you say you are with God right now? And he was not insulted by that question. He said, I, I can't go back to God. And I said, really, why would that be? He said, after what I've done. And I could tell he had in mind at that very moment one specific thing. And he wouldn't tell me what it was. But he was convinced God didn't want him back. And so this morning, it is so important that you and I recalibrate our understanding of God, that we get a new mental image of what God does when you and I violate his holiness and that we get it right from here. And so I want to take you into the scriptures this morning and give you that mental image. I want to help you feel the heart of God toward you this morning. And to do that, we're going to look at the story of Absalom, David's third son. He is probably one of my least favorite characters in the entire Bible. And over, as his story unfolds over five or six chapters, you will see why. Because he does to his father three unforgivable things. Let's look at it together. The first is that Absalom arrogantly undermines his father's leadership. We see in chapter 14, verse 25, that Absalom got his dad's good looks. Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. And it seems like that's gone to his head a little bit because he cut his hair only once a year. He had the kind of the Fabio thing going. And then, only because it was so heavy, when he weighed it out, it came to five pounds. How does he know how much it weighs? Because he wants to brag about it. My hair was five pounds. <laughs> Don't you wish you had hair like mine? Verse, chapter 15, verse 1, after this, Absalom bought a chariot and horses, and he hired 50 bodyguards to run ahead of him. Now, this is an entire military unit of guys. Now, everywhere you go out into the city, make way, make way for Absalom, Absalom the Great. It's like landing in Air Force One. Everybody assumes you're the president, or you are doing the president's will, or maybe you're the vice president who's been allowed to use the flight. Because the only people who get that treatment are King David or the crown prince. Absalom is neither. He's actually using his dad's money to put on the charade that he's much more important than he actually is. And then he does this strategy because he also got his dad's political genius. He got up early every morning. He went out to the gate of the city where people are waiting to, they've brought their legal cases. And when people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. He does this because if they're from the ten northern tribes, he dials in even more. David's never really understood you. He's from the south. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's just too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. Oh, I wish I were the judge, because then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I'd give them justice. Now you get the sense at this point in David's life that he's a little off of his leadership game. And for whatever reason, he has not kept up with appointing the regional and local judges that are needed to administer justice. 
And so Absalom exploits that leadership oversight in David's part. And here's what he does. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Now he's got this whole charade how important he is, right, with the 50 hired guys and the hired uniforms with the hired chariot. But he wants to come across as, I'm just one of you. I'm so humble, unlike that autocratic, distant David. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Now how did David win the hearts of the people of Israel? I'll tell you how. At great risk to his own life, he went out in battle to defeat their enemies and to keep them safe. At great cost to his soul, he won and captured the capital city. And at great expense, including his own, built the capital city for the people of God. He did all that for them. And so naturally, their hearts were bonded to David. And what has Absalom done to win the hearts of the people? Nothing. Nothing heroic or noble. He just steals the affection that the people naturally have for David for him. Now, maybe you have seen this dynamic go on in churches or in businesses or even in families where someone who is not the leader steals the affection of that group of people. Have you seen this? I can tell you why it happens very clearly. Let me explain that. When you're the second chair leader, you are not responsible for those painful and difficult decisions that made people hurt, confused, or upset. You can blame and say, oh, yeah, the guy upstairs, yeah, he's the one who did that. I had nothing to do with that. I didn't even agree with that. So now the people hate that person and love you, right? Very simple to do. And the senior leader, by virtue of their uh, situation, need to be in, say, the palace or out on the battlefield, so they're not hanging by the gate every day. They have to be more distant because of their role. So a second chair leader can easily step into that vacuum and go, oh man, he's distant, he's out of touch, he doesn't even know what's going on. But meanwhile, I'm down here among you. I care. You see how that works? And he steals the hearts of the people. So Absalom uses his looks, his political genius that he's inherited from his dad, uses his dad's money, and he arrogantly undermines his father's leadership. But that's not all. Then he rebelliously seizes his father's place. His advisor, Ahithophel, if you look at... uh, Oh, I'm sorry. uh, Let me go back up here to chapter 15, verse 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. He launches the coup, and people follow him. And David gets how serious he is, and he says, we have to flee at once or it'll be too late. Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. And so the king and all his household set out at once. He left no one behind except ten of his concubines to look after the palace. See, David's caught off guard by this. He doesn't expect it from his own son. And so he's forced to flee for his life from the palace that he's built, leave his home, leave behind everything he owns, leave behind the capital city that he won for the people, and run. And Absalom enters that city unopposed, and he immediately shows who's boss. And they set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it. And Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. Now not only... Is this a personal violation of the deepest and most painfully unspeakable sort? But is a statement of raw power. How did these women come into the royal harem? 
Well, back in those days, one king would make a treaty with the king of another country. And as a part of a way of cementing the alliance or, or sort of signing on that treaty, they would exchange maybe daughters, right, to each other's king's household. And so what Absalom is saying is, I've got this. I'm keeping these treaties. I'm the king in this house right now. And he flagrantly seizes his father's place. But if it's not enough that he's arrogantly undermined his father's leadership and rebelliously seized his father's place, he now violently leads an army to kill his father. Chapter 17, verse 1, his closest advisor urges him, let me start out after David tonight. I'll kill only the king. And verse 4, this plan seemed good to Absalom. He wants his father dead. He wants everybody out of the way so he can be king. So David now has to use his brilliant military mind to save himself from his own son. And so he, he breaks his troops into three under chapter 18, verse 5, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He's going up against a much larger army, so he needs smaller mobile units. And he tells them, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. Whatever you do, don't hurt him. And then, knowing that he's going up against much larger forces, he starts the battle, verse 6, in the forest of Ephraim, where he can do guerrilla warfare. And that works very well. The Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. Now let's pause right there. One guy, Absalom, gets it in his heart, I've got to be at the top, and 20,000 innocent men die. It's too much to take in. In verse 9, during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree, his mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. Now this picture, the only person who rides a mule like that is the king. Solomon rides the royal mule. Jesus rides the royal mule when he comes into Jerusalem. So he's saying, I'm the king. I'm on the royal mule. And the royal mule says, no, you're not. I'm moving on. And what catches him in the hair and paralyzes him from moving is his, the hair that he was so proud of. His own pride says, you're not ready to be king. You don't deserve to be king. And against David's express orders, Joab, verse 14, took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. And so now let's go to the end of the story where this news is reported back to David. Verse 33, the king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and he burst into tears. And as tears are running down his cheeks, he's crying out, he can't help himself. He's like, my son, Absalom. My son. My son, Absalom. If only I died instead of you. My son, my son. My son, Absalom. He's in absolute shock. He can't help repeating himself. He's a mess. He's just, my son, my son, Absalom. Everybody can hear him. He can't pull it together. Now stop right there. This is not the way the story's supposed to go. I've gone to action movies like you have, where the villain in that movie does half of what Absalom has just done to his own father. 
And when that villain in the climactic scene finally gets what's coming to him and falls to his death into the abyss of doom, the machine that he made to incinerate the whole world or whatever, the entire movie theater claps and cheers out loud. Have you been there when that's happened? And David should be clapping and cheering. He should be going, I'm safe. My life is spared. I was going to be killed. Now I'm safe. The the lives of my wives and children, they've all been saved. Hallelujah. I've kept the kingdom. I've won the war. That evil son who ungratefully turned against me, usurped my power, poisoned the people against me and tried to kill me, is finally dead. Oh, hallelujah. He can't do it. All he can do is weep at the top of his voice. My son. My son, Absalom. And he says, like every parent who's ever lost a child, if only I died instead of you. The Bible says that David is a man after God's own heart. And at this moment, we get a deep and sacred look into the heart of God. For the rebellious, for the conniving, for the arrogant, for the impulsive, for you and for me. So when this woman came to me and said, after everything I've done, I I just sometimes fear I might not make it into heaven. What's her picture of God right then? It's like a teacher that you come to two weeks before the end of the semester and you're standing at the teacher's desk and he's looking up your grades on, in the online grade book, RenWeb or something, and he's like got these tight lips and kind of shaking his head and going, you know, at this point in the semester, uh, best, best you can do is a D. You know, I'm sorry. Is that your image of God too? When you mess up? It's not the real picture of God. The real picture of God is what David does when Absalom dies. And on a day that was dark but we call good, that parents cry, Oh, that I would have died instead of you, became his express purpose and redemptive intent. And he stepped into this world and did that so that you could come back. So I could come back. Because he wants to be with his son, his daughter, that much. This 20-something guy at River City Roasters who says, I could never come back to God after what I've done. His picture of God is that God has come in, slammed the door, bolted the door, thrown the full weight of his back against the door, and is standing like this and saying, you will never get back into this house. That's his view of God. But can I tell you on the authority of the word of God that there is nothing God would not do to have you back as his son or his daughter. He weeps for you. He longs for you. Nothing can stand between him and you. When my son Andrew was two years old, Karen and I drove east to go visit grandparents and we stopped in Lorraine and Elyria, Ohio. If you know that stop off the Ohio Turnpike, And there we stayed at the Knight's Inn, and I remember that for two reasons. The first reason was the room had purple shag carpeting. 
which had gone out about 20 years before that, but uh, there it was. And so it was a motel, and so we pulled up to the curb, and we're just five feet from the door to the room. And so we unlocked the door to the room and brought in some suitcases, and our son Andrew kind of toddled into the room, and while he was in there, Karen and I went back out to the trunk of the car to get the rest of our things. And while we were in there, Andrew figured out something. If I take my full toddler weight and push on the door of the room, it moves. And so he did this, boom, and the door closed. And then he saw something kind of shiny up above the doorknob. And he thought that was really cool. So he got up on his tiptoes as far as he could and went click like this, and it made a satisfying click noise. And then he looked at us through the glass as we're coming up to the door again and goes, ha, ha, ha. And we're like, uh, Andrew, and we turn the knob, and it's locked because actually he has just deadbolted that room. The key does not move the deadbolt. So we go, Andrew, Andrew, hey, turn the little knobby, reach up, turn it. And after a couple unsuccessful attempts, he all of a sudden realizes, what have I done? I have just separated myself from my mom and my dad. I just deadbolted this thing, and they can't get to me. And he starts to scream, ah, ah, like that. I didn't even get back in the car. I sprinted over to the office at the Knights Inn in Lorraine, Elyria, Ohio, and I get, said to the person, the person at the counter was talking to somebody. I didn't care. I said, my son is locked in the room. He's a toddler. I need somebody to come right now and get him out. The old janitor comes out of the side room and is kind of shuffling. I'm like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And he, he comes with me, and I'm half dragging this poor man. And we get to the room, and he pulls out his master key and flips that thing. Now, what do you think I did to my son at that moment? exactly what God wants to do with you. I picked him up and I would not let him go. Now where are you with God? Have you blown it? Have you intentionally violated the holiness of God and you knew it was wrong? You grabbed the good and plenty and now you're not sure what God looks like when he's coming down that aisle. I can tell you, he's weeping and he wants you back. And he will do whatever it takes to get you back. He's willing to die in your place to get you back. Is there any reason you would stay away another second this morning? Would the truth of God go into your heart and irradiate any cancerous, lying, dark images of God that he would reject you forever, that he would no longer have mercy on his own son or his own daughter? Would you cast away forever that slur on the character of God? And would you come back to him with all your heart this morning? Don't delay a second. Jump into his arms because he will not be happy until he cradles you there and holds you tight and says, my son, my son, my daughter, my daughter, oh, that I have you back again. Amen.